<coughs> and when you get there, we will be looking for the next couple weeks in chapters 3 and 4, which are preparation chapters for Jesus' public ministry. So chapters 1 and 2 dealt with his birth. Chapters 3 and 4, preparation for the launching of his public ministry. And then in the middle of 4, chapter like 16, we have his public ministry, and then we go into the last week of his life. Now, what Matthew has done so far is he's established that Jesus is the, is the legitimate king of Israel by virtue of his birth. Herod is the king of Israel by virtue of an appointment by the Roman Senate. He's the illegitimate king of Israel as far as God's concerned. So now what Matthew's going to do, he's going to skip 27 years from the birth of Christ uh, to his adulthood, and he's going to talk about Christ's preparation for his public ministry. So we're going to read verses 1 and 2 of Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, is at hand. Now notice, uh, we are introduced to John, and notice how he is identified. First, he's identified as the Baptist. Uh, actually, it's the baptizer. If you were looking at a Greek text, it's the baptizer. Or the dunker. Or the dipper. And so uh, John is a dipper. He dips or dunks people in water. And that's how he was known. He's always known as the, as the baptizer or the dipper. Also, he's identified as a preacher. It says he came preaching in the wilderness. And uh, the word for preaching here is associated uh, in the Roman world with a town crier who comes into the city square and he makes an announcement gives a warning. Uh, the British are coming! The British are coming! Uh, that's what a town crier did. He represented, he had the authority of the government behind him. And uh, when there was an important announcement that had to be made, he would go into the city square and he would make this urgent announcement. So, uh, John is a like a town crier who heralds a message uh, from the king. Only he represents a different king. Uh, he represents God as king. Now notice his message there. What is the warning that he is giving? The, the call, the instructions that he is giving. It says, his message was, repent. And that word repent means turn around, make an about face. Change. It's a command. He's walked in, he's come into uh, a in a public arena and he's calling for the people to change. Now, why the necessity for the change? Look what he says. Repent or change or make an about face or reorient your life in a different direction because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that phrase, kingdom of heaven, is one of Matthew's favorites. It's actually the theme of the book. And it's used 32 times in the Gospel of Matthew. All the other Gospels use the phrase Kingdom of God. For the same, if you went to the John the Baptist uh, section in Luke's Gospel, he would say, repent, the Kingdom of God is at hand. 
Uh, Luke or, or Matthew is a little more Jewish uh, than some of these other writers, the other writers of scriptures, and he doesn't like to use the word God. They saw that often as profane when they used the word God too much. And so they would substitute the word God for the word heaven, but it means basically the same thing. So he calls the people to reorient their lives. Why? For what reason? What's the necessity? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. Now when it says kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven is at hand, that refers to God's rule. God's reign uh, over Israel and over the earth. It includes restoring the kingdom to Israel that has been lost. You know the story. Israel became a kingdom under Saul. It was a bad kingdom under Saul. Under David, who was a good king, and then his son Solomon, who messed things up. As a result of Solomon marrying many wives and them leading him into idolatry, the nation was weakened and it was split between the north and the south. The north took the name Israel. The south took the name Judah. This kingdom was split in two, just like the United States was split in two at one time, and there was a civil war. And in the end, the entire kingdom of God, Israel, Judah, totally collapsed. They were invaded by the Assyrians, and as a result, they were scattered. They were then invaded 150 years by the Babylonians and they were taken captive. And then Persia came on the scene, the new world power, and defeated the Babylonians. And again, the Jews were at their mercy. And then Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire took over. Just as we have a succession of nations and countries and empires that have risen up in power and then lost their power. Uh, the British Empire at one time was the greatest empire in the world, wasn't it? In modern times, but not today. The Soviet Union was an empire of socialist countries, but it lost its power. The United States was a great empire. We had colonies here and colonies there and Guam and you know, all those different places that have American troops and are loyal to the United States of America. But we're losing even our power. Well, at one time, the great power was God's kingdom, Israel, under David, but it lost its power. Assyria came up, became the next power, took over the known world at that time. Then it was defeated by Babylon. It was defeated by Persia. It was defeated by Greece. So the Jewish people were always under the control of somebody else. Occupied, scattered, captive. And there was only a period of 100 years where they were free between 167 and 163 B.C. One period of time when they rose up against Antiochus Epiphany and they defeated him when he wanted to sacrifice a pig at the altar. Remember that story? And the Maccabean revolt took place and the Jews freed themselves. They thought they were free. But guess what happened during that hundred years? 
their own Jewish leaders oppressed them. And they said, give us back Greece. <laughs> give us back Persia. We'd rather be under them. And then the next world power that took over was Rome. And that's where we are today in this passage. The Jews, most of the Jews in the world are scattered. And some have returned to their homeland and they're under occupied troops, Roman troops. Well, the Old Testament prophet said that one day God was going to return and he was going to rule the world universally and he was going to restore the kingdom to Israel. And so John says, guess what? The kingdom of heaven, verse 1, the kingdom of God is at hand. This is ready to happen. Notice that phrase, is at hand. Now, very important when you look at that phrase, is at hand. What does is at hand mean? The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. Does that mean it's going to happen 2,000 years from now? No, that wouldn't be at hand, would it? Okay. Uh, this is a very interesting phrase, at hand. It means it's dawning. It's uh, within reach. It's within grasp. It's right at the door. In fact, uh, the, the verb here is what in the Greek is called a perfect verb, which refers to something that has happened and continues to have results. So what he's saying is the kingdom has dawned and it's, it's started and it's continuing. So, John says the kingdom has already begun. It's the prophecies of old have been fulfilled. God right now is beginning His kingdom. Now, that doesn't mean the kingdom is what it will be in its totality, but it means it's begun. It's started. It's like when you get pregnant. Not degrees of pregnancy. Are there? If you're pregnant, you're what? You're pregnant. But guess what? There's a starting point of pregnancy. You got a baby. And then nine months later it comes out. And guess what? You still have a baby, but it's different than it was when it started. But guess what? When you're pregnant, you're pregnant. Then the baby grows up to be a teenager, and then goes off to college, and then is an adult, and then gets married. You still have kids. But it started way back then. Well, guess what? John says the kingdom of God right now is starting right now. God is starting to establish His kingdom. It's not everything that it will be, but it's done. And He says, hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. The kingdom of God is at hand. I'm issuing you a warning. In order to be prepared for its arrival, you need to repent. You need to change your life. You need to reorient your life. How are they to change? They need to be faithful to God, and they haven't been. The Jews at this time, they were crying out for God to deliver them, but they weren't living for God. And so he says, you need to change and reorient your life. That's the appropriate response for the kingdom kingdom's arrival, and it's an urgent response. There's no time for delay. That makes sense to you? Now, look at the beginning of that verse. It says, in those days. You see that? In what days? When the kingdom fever was high. 
just as the Jews had cried out for deliverance when they were in Egypt, the Roman government was so oppressive that they were beginning to cry out again, say, Oh, Lord, deliver us! Set up your kingdom! And there were a lot of little messiahs, people coming on the scene saying, I'm the messiah who's going to deliver you. There was sort of a messianic fever going on. And John comes on the scene as God's authorized representative. And he says, let me tell you something. The kingdom is at hand. It's not enough just to cry out for it. You need to be prepared for it. You need to reorient your life. You need to change. Okay, does that make sense? Now, here's the explanation of why John is preaching this message. The explanation for his mission. Verse 3. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. So, what Matthew says is that what John is doing is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that's found in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. And uh, that phrase, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, uh, was used in secular society to describe a state visit from a king. And when a king was going to come, let's say a king, let's say in the United States, let's take a president of the United States. When the president of the United States is going to make a state visit to another country, or a king of another country is going to make a state visit to the United States. One thing we do is we prepare the roads. That's what this says right here. Prepare the way. You see that? That means prepare the highway. The word way is a shortening of the word highway. And so what you'll do is that when a king is going to make a state visit, there are people that are forerunners that go ahead of him. They make sure the route is clear. If you have potholes in the road where the king's coming, those potholes are fixed. Now, I've seen a couple presidents visit just some states in our own union. And when they come, there's a team that comes before them to prepare for his way. And suddenly you'll see cops on top of bridges. Hours before he takes that route, there are cops there making sure everything is secure. And the Secret Service comes in days in advance to prepare his way. So, what Isaiah the prophet said was this. When God comes to set up his kingdom, I'm going to send someone who will prepare the way for him. Now, he's not going to prepare a literal highway. He's going to prepare his people for his arrival. And so that's the office that John has. That's the purpose of his mission. Now look how he's described in verse 4. Now John himself was clothed, in, was clothed in camel hair with a leather belt around his waist. And his food was... I'm going to change it for you so you can just see what his food was. His food was bugs and sugar. You see that? Now... I'm putting it in that language. It says locust and wild honey, of course. But I'm putting it in that language so you can get the feel of what Matthew is saying. Matthew is saying he's a prophet, but he's a poor prophet. He's not wearing robes with 
purple stripes. He has no class. He's wearing basically, I would say rags, but he's wearing very plain, plain, plain clothing. The clothing is so plain that it's recognizable as being plain. And what he eats for his diet, this is his entire diet, bugs and sugar. Uh, not the kind that you go out and buy on a shelf. The kind that you find out in a honeycomb. So it doesn't cost him anything to live. He's living off the earth, and so he's described as a poor prophet, very reminiscent of Elijah the prophet. Now look at verse 5 and 6. We have the reaction here uh, to John's message. It says, Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and the region around Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the wilderness, or in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Now we saw up in verse 1 that he was in the wilderness, and so now all the city people and in the surrounding towns go out to hear John preach. Now, notice what it says. They went out to him at the end of verse 5, and they were baptized. By him. Now, what did John call them to do? Repent. What did he do? He baptized them. He said you're to repent. And what does he end up doing with them? Baptizing them. This is why we say that repentance and baptism go hand in hand and you cannot separate them. The people showed that they were willing to make a break with their old life and enter into a life of a faithful covenant with God by submitting to baptism. And John baptized them in the Jordan River. And guess what they were doing at the end of verse 5 when they were getting baptized? They were confessing their sins. They were saying, okay, we've lived apart from God. Yes, we wanted God to rescue us. It's like we want God to rescue us when we get ourselves in some messes. Make a lot of promises and don't do anything about it. Well, we're going to change that. We confess that's what we were doing. We're saying, Lord, we're going to live a faithful life for you. We're going to show it by being baptized. Now, there were two groups of people that were baptizing during this period of time. The first, the Jews were baptizing. They were baptizing Gentiles who wanted to convert to Judaism. You happened to be a Gentile back in Jesus' day. And uh, somehow you came in contact with Judaism and you realized the God of Israel was the true God and you wanted to convert to Judaism. They would allow you to convert to Judaism, become a Jew. Now, some Gentiles didn't do this. They just became God-fearers. But if you wanted to convert to Judaism... Sammy Davis Jr., remember that name? Sammy Davis Jr., married, what was the woman's name? Something great. Mae Brick, or whatever her name was. Converted to Judaism. In Jesus' day, if you were a Gentile wanting to convert to Judaism, you had to be baptized. The Jews would baptize you. And that was because you needed your sins cleansed. Uh, you 
You were not a Jew. You weren't, weren't under the law. You didn't keep the law. You didn't keep the Ten Commandments. You didn't believe any of that stuff. You were a pagan idolater. And they said, you need to break with that past and have your sins forgiven. And what we're going to do is we're going to baptize you. And when we baptize you, this water will represent your sins being cleansed. And when you go down, you're going to be dead to the old life of paganism. And when you come up, you'll be a new person. You'll be a Gentile. So Jews were baptizing Gentiles as proselytes. Now, let me ask you a question. When John comes and he speaks to the Jews and he says, you need to be baptized. They say, what? Why do we need to be baptized? We're Jews. We already have a relationship with God. We're Abraham's children. He says, oh no, guess what? You're just as dirty as a Gentile. Something new's happening. To get into this kingdom that God's establishing, He's requiring something. You need to repent, you need to confess your sins, and you need to submit to baptism. So I think for a Jew to submit to baptism had to be a very humbling experience. Now there was a second group that was doing baptisms, and this was the Qumran community. You've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You've heard of the Essenes. The Essenes were a group of Jews who were very pious. And uh, they didn't follow the Sadducees who controlled the temple. They said, you're Roman compromisers. They didn't follow the Pharisees. They didn't agree with the Pharisees interpretation of the law. So they broke away and they started their own commune. It was called the Qumran community and they were known as the Essenes. And they're the ones who saved all the manuscripts that we call the Dead Sea Scrolls. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947-1948, a lot of writings were discovered that were not Bible. They were writings that the Essenes wrote manuals, how to live in the Essene community. Uh, their theology, they wrote theology books. All these kinds of books were discovered among the Dead Sea Scrolls. And from these books we learned about how they lived. And one of the things they did is they said this. We are a separate community. We believe God's coming back soon and set up his kingdom. We believe God's going to raise up a teacher of righteousness who's going to lead the way. And we ask you to join us. But to join us, you have to be baptized. And they required their own Jewish brethren to be baptized. And if you do that and you pass the test, that means you live a faithful life. Then we'll let you eat with us at our table. Sort of like the Lord's table. They had a table where they ate. But you had to be a person in good standing to eat at that table. So these were the, these were the people that were baptizing. And the, the Essenes were baptizing Jews. This is what's caused people to say maybe John the Baptist was somehow associated at one time with the Essene community. Was John the Baptist an Essene? Sometimes you'll read articles like that. And uh, he may have had some sort of connection. We just don't know. But anyway, this is what he's requiring the people to do. Repent, be baptized, confess their sin. And I know, want you to notice the baptism there in verse 6 and his message in verse 2 are linked. Baptism was linked to entering the kingdom of God before it was ever associated with the church. Is the church in existence at this time? It doesn't even come into existence until Pentecost, does it? 
Baptism was associated with entering the kingdom of God before it was ever associated with a local church. So when we say, well, baptism was a local church ordinance, that's true, but guess what? Baptism existed before that church has ever existed. We adopted it. So you need to understand that. Remember when Jesus was resurrected? He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Look, how much authority? I'm the king. I got it all. Therefore, you go, make disciples, baptizing them. Remember when he said that? Church wasn't in existence when Jesus told you to go out and baptize. The Great Commission to baptize is given before the church ever even in existence. Baptism has always been associated with the kingdom. It's very important that you get that. Now look at verse 7. But when John the Baptist saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, uh, the New American Standard says for his baptism, but that's, that's the wrong translation. They were coming to his baptism. In other words, they were checking him out. They were the authorized officials of Judaism. What's this guy doing? Let's go check him out. He sees them coming. He says to them, Welcome! It's good to see you here. He says, You brood of vipers. Uh, I can't tell you how pejorative this statement is, brood of vipers. It, rep it spoke of murderers. The phrase brood of vipers was a reference to people who were such horrendous murderers that they would even kill their own mother. So he does not have a high opinion of them. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And obviously no one. They're not trying to flee from the wrath to come. They're just checking them out. So he's saying basically, what are you doing here? And in their mind, they would say, checking you out, buddy, checking you out. We don't have to be baptized because we are, we represent God. We are the officials. Uh, and John realizes this, and look what he says in verse 9. Don't, verse 9, do not think to say to yourselves, in your own minds, in other words, we have Abraham as our father. We don't have to be baptized. We're already authorized. We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from the stones. So what he's saying is it's not by birth that's going to get you into this kingdom. Don't think, well, we're Abraham. We're, we're, we're Jews by birth. It's not going to be birth that gets you into this kingdom. It is baptism. It's not respect that gets you into the kingdom is repentance. You need to reorient your life. And they have no desire to do that. Now look what he says in verse 10 to these people. And now, and even now, not 2,000 years from now, even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Now, what do you do with an axe and a tree? Yeah, cut it down. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Verse 10. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, John's not talking about trees, although that's true. Bad trees, trees that's dead, guess what you do? You just cut it down. We don't use axes usually today. We use a saw. But in those days, you use an axe, you just cut a tree down. He's talking about them, though. 
There's no fruit, of, no evidence of faithfulness in your life. And you know what? You're going to be judged. Uh, not just at the end of the age. When is the judgment taking place? What's it say in verse 10? Even now, do you see that? Is that, is that where it says? Even now the axe is there. See, now guess what? Judgment's now, but something else is now. The kingdom is now. The Old Testament prophets said when the kingdom arrived, two things would happen. Some would be delivered. That's done through water. Baptism in this case. Repentance. Remember when Israel was delivered from Egypt? They had to go through something, didn't they? They had to go through the Red Sea. <laughs> the Red Sea was their deliverance. The Red Sea was their deliverance. And then Pharaoh's army came, and what was the Red Sea for them? Their death. When the kingdom comes, there will be deliverance. We have water here. And there will also be judgment represented by fire. You see that? The tree is cut down, and where is it thrown? Into the fire. Two aspects of the kingdom. Deliverance and judgment. Deliverance and judgment. Those who do not repent will be judged. Those who do repent will be delivered. Will be given eternal life. That's what John is saying. And it becomes pretty clear when he says that. Look what he says in verse 11. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. That's one that's going to lead to repentance and deliverance. But he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now he points to the coming one, the one that he's preparing for his arrival. We know this is the Messiah. He doesn't say it at this point. Uh, but he says there's going to be a Messiah who's going to come. And uh, I'm doing one thing and he's going to do another thing. Now what's John doing? John is bringing about repentance. Calling people to... Re uh, he's bringing about preparing the way. He's causing people to repent. Be delivered. When the Messiah comes, he says he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means... It could mean this. That those that are delivered will get the Holy Spirit... And those who don't repent, they will get fire. They'll get judgment. It could mean that. It could also mean something else. That word right there, spirit, in verse 11, at the end of verse 11, the word pneuma, you're very familiar with pneuma, you get pneumonia, speaks of the air or the spirit. That word can be translated wind. He may just be talking to the Pharisees. And the Sadducees. He said, he could be saying something like this. Look, I'm baptizing you with water. I'm offering you deliverance right now. Right now. The kingdom's here. You have to get delivered right now. You have to repent right now. If you wait till the Messiah comes, it's going to be too late for you. You've already heard the message. You have a chance to prepare right now. If you wait for him, it's going to be too late because he's going to baptize you Pharisees and Sadducees with wind and fire. Ooh, that sounds like judgment, doesn't it? 
So it can mean that. So there's a couple options here. But either way, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are going to be judged. He says that he's not worthy to carry the sandals of the one who's coming after him, which means he sees himself differently than the Messiah. The Messiah will be the king, and he'll be the king's slave. And uh, in Bible times, slaves washed people's feet and carried their sandals and so forth. Look at verse 12. His winnowing fan is in his hand. That's the one coming after John. He will thoroughly clean out his fleshing, threshing floor. He will gather the wheat into the barns, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now what he's doing, he's describing a practice that farmers uh, carried out at harvest time. After you harvested the crop, you got all your grain together, and you went to a barn, and you would throw the grain into the air. And the wind, we mentioned back in the verse 11, the wind would separate the wheat from the chaff. And the wheat, the heavy wheat, would fall down. And that would be gathered. That was good. That was good fruit. The chaff would be separated by the wind, and then the chaff would be collected and thrown into the fire. So, what John could be saying is something like this. I'm giving you an opportunity to repent right now and be prepared for the arrival of the kingdom. If you wait till the Messiah comes and think you can get in on the last minute, it'll be too late. You're going to be judged. He's going to judge you with wind and fire. He's going to, you're going to discover what you are, whether you're wheat or whether you're chaff. If you're chaff, then there is Fire. So what we have in this, uh, there is judgment. So what we have in this passage is preparation for the arrival of the kingdom. Now, let me give you a couple lessons here. For Matthew's readers. If Matthew's readers are Jews and Gentiles living in, in uh, Antioch, as we said in our very first lesson, maybe in 80 AD or something, uh, then this really makes sense because remember what we said at the beginning of this study, beginning lesson number one. There were Christian Jews living up north and they were having some problems with their Jewish leaders. John the Baptist had any problem here with Jewish leaders? Oh yeah, Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to check him out. And these Jewish believers up north who are living 50 years after these events have taken place. Many of them not even alive when these events were taking place. Are also having problems with some Jewish authorities, non-Messianic Jewish authorities. And Matthew is writing this and telling them this story so they can relate to it. And what he is saying is, See, that what's happening is that these Jewish authorities are telling these Jewish Christians, don't hang out with Gentiles. Uh, you're a Jew by birth. You have an advantage. You don't have to be a, quote, a Christian to have eternal life. Just by being a child of Abraham, you have eternal life. And uh, Matthew writes and says, guess what? Being a child of Abraham counts for what? Nothing. 
Don't listen to that message. That's not true. Jews do not have advantages over the Gentiles. Now, also, by the time Matthew is writing this, if it's around 80 AD, the temple's been destroyed. No longer around. Jews have been scattered. That's why these people are up north now. The Sadducees who ran the temple no longer exist. Listen to this. In 80 AD, the Sadducees who ran the temple no longer exist. Because the temple's not around. They don't have anything to do anymore. They sort of just dissolve. What did Jesus say would happen to the Sadducees? Or John the Baptist say what happened to the Sadducees? They would be judged. Have they been judged? They're not even around anymore. And the Pharisees, they're still trying to pressure these people to go back into Judaism, but guess what? The Pharisees are going to be judged too. Now the Sadducees are already out of business, and guess what that means? The Pharisees are going to be out of business. You don't want to cast your lot with these people. And then, he says, the kingdom's already arrived. Matthew writes. Why would you want to go back to old traditional Judaism, non-Messianic Judaism, that John the Baptist called the people out of, told them they had to reorient their lives toward the kingdom? Why would you want to go back there when the kingdom of God has arrived and you have eternal life through the Messiah? You see, this is why when you are reading a passage like this, you're reading it at three levels. First of all, we're reading about events that took place in 27 A.D. or 30 A.D. That's what literally happened then. But then we have to read it through the eyes of the people to whom it's written. People who are living in 80 A.D. How does it apply to them? And then guess what we have to do? We have to read it how, how it applies to us in the 21st century. You see, you're reading these things at three different levels. And the way that we normally read the scriptures is at one level. A flattened version. And that's why people who have good sense say, it has to be more than that. So when we do this, we start getting the fullness of the scripture. And we see there's an original meaning, there's an application for the readers to whom it was originally written, and there's an application to us. And for us, the application is, guess what? Where are the Pharisees now? Have you seen any hanging around? I haven't seen a Pharisee re recently. Have you? I haven't seen any Sadducees around recently. Have you? No, they've been judged. And guess what? The kingdom of God is on the march. It started back then. Like a mustard seed. It's growing, 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 and growing. Until the Lord comes, and will cover the entire world. Next week, we'll look at the baptism of Jesus in chapter 3, verse 13. Father, we thank you for this word. Help us to realize the depths, uh, the richness, uh, the vitality, uh, the meaning of a text like this. Help us, Lord, to realize that you've given us this text. And now, it's our responsibility to share it with others, to call others to the Messiah, call others to repent, be baptized, confess their sins, live a life faithful to the Messiah. And oh Lord, help us apply it to our own lives as well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.